Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. My name is Nathan Tembu. I'm studying a BA General at the University of Advertisrant. My view on transformation on uh, higher education, I think that there's so many different cases in which in which both sides, I would say black and white, poor and rich, aren't completely satisfied and there's no there's no really a leaning side. It's a tilting um, scale if you if you had to use an analogy. So I think that there's still a lot of uncertainty on how to fix a problem and that universities are trying the best they can. I think it's just a matter of the people, and by the people I mean students, just being patient and trying to get involved in the whole process instead of just pointing fingers, blaming the state and not actually helping address the issue. So yeah, that's my view. Transformation is a buzzword at the moment. And although it seems to be on everyone's lips, I think sometimes we don't take enough time to reflect on what it means and how we can achieve it. Today's guest is Nazima Mohammed. Nazima has worked as a policy analyst, consultant, and manager in higher education. She has a master's in higher education management from the University of London in the UK. Before that, she spent about five years as the director of transformation and employment equity at the University of the Witwatersrand before joining the Ford Foundation as a program officer in higher education. She was also the transformation manager at the University of Cape Town between 2003 and 2007. Greeting to our guest for today's episode, Nazima Mohammed, who I have already introduced to you. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Nazima. Thank you, Mehita, and thanks for including me in the podcast that you're sharing with the rest of the world. It's a real pleasure. Today, our focus is going to be on the very big and very complicated and very pressing question of transformation. And I thought we could perhaps start with some of the basics. We use this word transformation often in our everyday work and we hear it a lot being used at high levels, management levels, policy levels, but many academic staff may still be battling a little bit with understanding precisely what it means. And I'm also cognizant that we may have listeners who are not from South Africa who may not grasp the special meaning of transformation in our context. So could you kick off by giving us your understanding of transformation and and just outlining the key issues that that shape the understanding of this topic and of this concept. Okay, so transformation in our context. While on the one hand, there has been huge systemic change. On the other, when we speak of transformation, we're speaking about how we correct the injustices that apartheid brought on, on the population in terms of the general, you know, black population in this country denying access to 
education and then when when black groups that were marg generally marginalized were included you know how how supports those groups within universities so the fact that we had a large number of education departments i think it was 19 and the system of own affairs where education was divided according to different population groups and there was a hierarchy in terms of the disbursement of funds those, those were all issues that impacted on universities. So we had historically white universities for English speaking, historically white universities for Afrikaans speaking South Africans, um, historically black institutions that were divided into colored Indian and African, and then the homeland universities like, you know, Transkei, Baputatswana at the time, Venda, known as, as homeland universities. And so the first systemic overall was was you know creating a united non-racial non-discriminatory higher education system in terms of the system and that was a huge task it was curriculum it was student access and student success making sure that students who actually access the system managed to complete their their you know, complete their degrees or certificate courses and were able to get access to good employment. Okay, so so transformation is about addressing the injustices of the past and 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 somehow coming up with policies and practices that deal with marginalization. And in in the South African context in specific, we speak about transformation quite a lot as as a an outcome or as a as an ideal that we're striving towards. What would you say to those who who are not familiar with the South African context in order to help them understand why it's so important that this question is at the heart of so much policy making at the moment? Well, you know, when the National Commission on Higher Education was established by the first Minister of Education, the big issue was really looking at access. And I think, if I remember correctly, at the time, participation rates were unequal, and that the participation rates of white South Africans between the ages of 18 and 25 was approximately 80%, and Black South Africans who were categorized as African under apartheid was 12%. And I think the colored ratios were, were approximately same, the same. And for Indian South Africans, it was a little higher when that commission was established. And so you, you see how unequal the participation rates were in the country. And so the first aim um, was to, to look at how to increase access in higher education, and at the same time to, to address the poor schooling of, of Black South Africans. And so you, you had a situation where access was increased, but often learners were coming into the system underprepared and, and they weren't passing. And so that became another transformation issue, is, you know, how to provide access and ensure that the learners were succeeding in the system. So policy basically, you know, focused on that. It also focused on the, you know, the teaching population in higher education institutions. At the time, and we still see it currently in the system, those who, who teach in the system are largely white and international. And then the the other issue is related to the ones we're discussing now, which is curriculum. 
the staffing profiles, the number of PhD, Black South Africans with, P, with PhDs was really low. And so it was about creating a, a pool of, of graduate students who could go into academia. All of those things went straightforward. There was the issue of institutional culture. Universities were dealing with issues of gender-based inequality, issues of disability, and the HIV and AIDS um, concerns were starting to emerge with that first commission of higher education, but uh, a few years later that those became issues of concern. Okay, so the, this first commission in higher education that you're talking about, was this, when was that established? So that was established in 1994 and in 1995. The commission's work was based on, partly through on the work of NEPI, the National Education Policy um, Investigation that was set up by the National Education Crisis Committee or Coordinating Committee, which was an anti-apartheid education body of all the major stakeholders who fought apartheid and who were part of the education movement. And the NECC was part of the UDF. The NECC at the time had done a lot of work on people's education and had come out with a number of booklets looking at educational transformation. And so those discussions then went, at least the higher education discussions, went into the National Commission on Higher Education that was established. And Jerem Reddy, who is now, I think he's the chair of council at DUT, was the chair of the commission with Teboho Moja and Nico Kluti being the part of the secretariat. It was a big commission that looked at governance issues, it looked at curriculum issues, it was an access committee, finance committee, all the major issues within the system. And redress and equality was built into each of the commission's discussions. Some of those issues could have been dealt with much better. It was the time where I I think partly, you know, there weren't a lot of black researchers in the system that were drawn on. And so you, I mean, this is a controversial statement, but I think that sometimes, you know, the research that came out, it, it wasn't, it didn't have the diversity of perspective that you'd have now with all the changes that have taken place. Mm. So... What you're describing are some early post-apartheid high-level kind of policy interventions Mm -hmm. towards the question of transformation. And and those are, of course, really important for us to to learn about and understand. Mm. But what I'm, I'm getting from the discussion so far is this really important point that within post-apartheid South Africa, transformation was a kind of a state-led intervention in order to redress the wrongs of the past and work towards a kind of non-racial university system. And I wonder if we could just reflect a little bit on the place of questions of race within the transformation project. I know it's a a difficult conversation to have, and I know that race is not the only category that needs to be dealt with in transformation, but it does seem to to hold a particularly important place. Could could you kind of explain to us a little more why that is and and how you think that can be dealt with? You know, we, we came out of a period where civil society was extremely active against apartheid. And a lot of these issues were being discussed within the universities. And so if, if you go back historically, you would see that at the time, for example, that's had through what you call UDUSA, the Union of Democratic University Staff Association, 
And then, you know, there had been a number of discussions within SASCO, which is now uh, SASCO with SANSCO. I don't want to go into all the history of, of the, the organizations, but it was a, a push for the for the establishment of transformation forums or transformation committees at universities. You know, prior to, to, to the setting up of the constitution and the new democratic state, there was a discussion about negotiating those change in various sectors of society. And in education, they set up the National Education and Training Forum. And at, at institutional level, UDUSA and SANSCO fought for the establishment of broad transformation forums. And broad transformation forums dealt with the issues that, that we're seeing emerging again and again. And university vice chancellors at the time found that they were they were too um, interventionist, and that there was a kind of a, 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 an attempt by BTS to take control of universities. And so you found that 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 many vice chancellors went for them. And part of the, the big struggle at the time was around changing councils. And a large number of council members at the time were appointed by government. And so you had these reactionary council members and reactionary councils operating within universities. And BTFs managed to change governments at the time. Around curriculum issues and finance issues, it, it really struggled. But the, the, the achievement, I think, was, was the changing of, of councils and really putting issues of representation, cooperative governance on the agenda in the early 90s. So it wasn't top down. There was a kind of meeting of, of minds. And with the, with the writing of the white paper on, on higher education, there was a big debate in Parliament about whether BTS should become part of university governance structures. And so you had the youth organizations, the Sanscos, the ANC Youth League, uh, the Christian youth organizations, the Muslim youth organizations that formed some, you know, a general constituency um, who reported partly to the National Youth Commission, arguing in Parliament to the Portfolio Committee and the ANC Study Group that BTS should be part of the governance structure. You had vice chancellors like Mantella arguing against against BTS being part of the uh, of universities. In the end, the youth won. Kind of, there was a compromise. So the, the compromise was the establishment of institutional forums that were stakeholder bodies that would advise council on transformation. In specific terms, it was to look at institutional culture and how universities were dealing with race, class, gender and disability issues. The institutional forum had a very specific role. And so what, what I, I've seen over the past few years, you know, since the establishment of the forum with the 1998 Higher Education Act is that the forums weren't given any budgets. They weren't taken very seriously. You, if you go back and you look at universities, you know, you, you, there, there, there wasn't a formal way of advising council on transformation. Um, for the forum's chair, for example, was sometimes just put in as chair by the management structures because they hardly had support. So you'd have stakeholders come into meetings with little research support or funding support to, to, to support the university on the issues that were outlined in the White Paper and the Higher Education Act. 
Okay, so some really important points you're making about how the transformation movement, if we could call it that, was not merely a top-down, but it was a, a multi-stakeholder and very much a bottom-up process as well in the post-apartheid era, and that it addresses many aspects of equity and inclusion, not simply the question of race. Yet somehow, in our discussions about transformation, race always seems to be prioritized. And I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit as to the reasons for that and, and yeah, your, your, your feelings from, a, I guess, from a policy perspective on the necessity for that and how then race can be considered also intersectional with other, with other key equity issues. Well, you know, I, it's, it's a hard question for me to answer. Race, it was, you know, the, we had legislated inequality um, that was based on racial divisions. And so when people ask that question, I struggle with it because it's like, how can you not see that? And I'm not saying that you can't see it, but it's, it's a major South African issue. We have to deal with it because it was there was systemic inequality. We went to different schools. We lived, lived in different areas. I, I mean, the, the number of apartheid laws that there were, yes, race is an issue. And of course, one has to look at the intersectionality. You see the huge inequalities uh, in in terms of living conditions, access to healthcare, access to security. And then if you look at, at issues of disability in this country, you know, it just leaves one in tears because it's so it, it, there's just no space for for people who are poor. Look at the poor quality of schools for people who are poor and, and have a disability to look at the limited access to universities and to further education and training colleges or TVETs as they call them now. Um, it, it, I, I, you know, I, I think there, there are a number of issues that we're not addressing in this period, in this, you know, in 2016 that really needs much more attention. I think you've made a really strong argument for why race needs to remain a central part of the project yeah. of transformation. It's simply too soon for us to pretend that race is no longer something that defines opportunities and the distribution of resources in our society. So I think you're absolutely right that any transformation policy or project needs to take head on and deal with the inequities that were produced along racial lines by the apartheid regime. Okay. So perhaps, um, you know, now that we've kind of really explored and thought through and, and discussed in quite a lot of detail the, the roots for the need for transformation, um, perhaps you could reflect a little bit on your experiences as a policymaker, as an administrator within universities, trying to put into place um, systems that can get us there. So, and, you know, what kinds of steps can universities take in order to take forward this project of transformation? What were some of the approaches and policies that, as an administrator yourself, you put into place? And, and which ones did you think worked? Which ones do you think could be improved on? Oh, wow. <laughs> the real difficulty around this conversation is that universities like Fritz UCT, who are, are seen as the, the research universities and the most advantaged universities in our country, will say that historically they've always taken a, uh, a stand against apartheid and were for opening up universities. They called themselves the open universities. 
the huge difficulty, and of course, you know, universities are complex, and so they took a stand on some issues, and then they also didn't take a stand on other issues. And so I think that the challenge is that within their own contexts, among their own staff and students, there was still white hegemony. And within, within those contexts, there was opposition to change, which in a sense made my life extremely difficult. I think partly transformation offices were set up as token offices, because my, my going into UCT as a transformation manager, I had no budget. You know, when I raised difficult issues, it wasn't dealt with very, you know, supportively. In fact, when, when you raise when you raise hard issues and you 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 ask the university why they're not doing certain things, you get power coming down on you and telling you to know your place. And I needed to know my place as a black person, and I needed to know my place as a woman. And as someone who wasn't, you know, highly privileged, I didn't go to a private school or to a Model C school. I came from a black school. And, and part, part of that was my own baggage. But really, there was an issue of knowing your place in, in, in the transformation space. And at the time, it was extremely painful. But over the years, in terms of our own networks and HESA, which was Higher Education South Africa at the time, there was a common experience um, of feeling unsupported often and that when 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 issues were raised and questions of budgets and implementation of a change agenda was was put forward that people would would not be um, it really outlines the kind of difficulty of post-apartheid South Africa that that this change process that has envisaged uh, the democratization, a struggle for culture of human rights, a struggle for non-racialism, a struggle for anti-racism, is a struggle for gender, you know, uh, for no, no violence against women, for uh, gender equity, uh, for, you know, a struggle against inequality and poverty. There's great opposition to those perspectives, believe it or not. One would think there wouldn't be, but there is. And it's a kind of a subtle resistance often that comes through when you when you put these matters on the table. And for me, you know, what I what I addressed at UCT and at FIT was gender-based violence at both universities. It's an area that I've been involved in for a long time, an uh, area of great concern throughout my career because it's constantly come to find me in different ways, you know, in putting it on the agenda. There was very little support from the institutions, both FITS and UCT. And I say this publicly because it's, it's in public documents, you know, I'm not saying things that people don't know and that they can't go and read up on. And so the, the question is, why is there that kind of resistance to something as, as, as straightforward as dealing with the rights of women to, to live uh, lives free of violence? Why is there resistance to doing something about it? Why is it that over for 20 years now we've been raising the same things over and over and over again and nothing has changed? You know, you raise some really important points and I'm, I'm quite struck by your 
your narratives of the very difficult emotional labor that comes with working on transformation in what questions of transformation brings up um, and how difficult they are to process and to deal with. And I think there's some kind of parallel almost between the emotional work that we have to do as a society in order to transform and to become more just and fair and how how that plays out also on the personal level, that when individuals take on these projects and work on them, there's a huge amount of emotional investment, which doesn't seem to ever really be spoken about. And that seems to me something that we should really be able to speak about, that transformation is difficult, it's hard, it's emotional work, and that we need various kinds of support systems in place. So what do you think institutions could and should do better in order to take forward a progressive and just and equitable transformation project? Well, I've always thought that South African universities have not fully addressed what it means to be transitioning from apartheid. And, I mean, lots of people have made the case that one of the problems is that universities didn't appear in front of the TRC, that there was no real reflection on the role that they had played in supporting the apartheid system. And I think it's, it's dealing with their own history, with, that, with, with a real acknowledgement of where we've come from. That is a step that's been, that is missing. It's, it's easy to say we fought apartheid or we had no control. It's not easy to look at what it is about institutions and their, their regulations and their procedures and their staff and their students, what, what it is about how they went about doing their business and their institutional cultures that supported apartheid. We haven't had that reflection. And so I think that the real reflection is on where we've come from and what is it that we envisage for the future. And so we all have these vision statements, but I, I think there really is a need for a vision statement that, that comes to terms with our history and how we see ourselves paving a different type of future, a future that is, is is respectful of human rights. I mean, that for me is the, the basis of a move forward, is the basis of any transformation strategy. And so from where I sit and as an implementer and an administrator and a manager who has been so intricately involved in this agenda, I don't think South African universities have a respect for human rights. They are willing to comply with policies in a, in a bureaucratic managerial way by ticking off boxes. Um, you know, when, when they have to do the employment equity reports, for example, it's a, it's a ticking of boxes rather than really dealing with the qualitative aspects of what the Employment Equity Act calls for. And so... I, my, my own sense is that many of our managers haven't even read the Employment Equity Act. And so the way in which they deal with their lack of, of, of motivation to change, and this is really hard hitting, um, is by saying that 
that the act is about chasing numbers, that the act is about quotas. And so you'll see all that is negative about the act, but you won't see the qualitative change strategies that the act requires. One of those strategies is dealing with gender-based violence. It's been around since 1998. You know, all the policies at the national level call for these changes. But in terms of the human ability to implement it, we haven't established that humanity um, to, to fully implement uh, rights agenda in South Africa. It, it is extremely frustrating to see this process being so slow. And so when, when the Fees Must Fall campaign happened and Roads Must Fall campaign happened, it was, it was like a light, you know, coming out of darkness. And with all the problems that those campaigns have had and the struggles that students have had, it was, for me, represented a new generation of South Africans saying something different um, and really pushing for a, a change agenda that my generation and other generations have not really been able to achieve. And so I, I, I've made an argument that all South African universities should have, you know, we, we currently have three core purposes. It's research, teaching and community engagement. And even community engagement was a hard one to win. But there should be a fourth one, a, a fourth purpose. And that would be how to become, you know, developing a higher education system that prepares us for, for a democratic society, a society that has a basic respect for human rights, that is not willing to live with poverty and inequality. What role do you think academic staff, existing academic staff, those who you know have tenured and permanent jobs in institutions, many of whom may often be criticized as being evidence of a, a failure of transformation, what role do you think existing academic staff should play in this project of transformation? What, what would you say to colleagues who perhaps have been scared by the transformation project or who feel that they may not have a place in it, what advice would you give them? There are people who have achieved ten tenure and who have played a role in the change agenda. I think they've played a very important role and they, they're not sufficiently acknowledged. I think the failure is, is about fear. And it's about the emotional work that you spoke about earlier. And I, I don't know how, how we deal with that specifically. And it's largely related to our own history as a country, um, the apartheid history of extreme segregation. And I don't know if this generation can change, you know, those who haven't changed, if they will ever change. Like, I, I, I would hope that the future, the, the current younger generation um, would be able to, to bring about the kinds of changes that, that we haven't seen because of their very different experiences, well, some of them in, in South Africa. Um, that may not make any sense to you, <laughs> but um, I, 
Yeah, and I, I have to think about how I say this. Uh, I, have, I have some thoughts about it, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not articulating it very well. Um, I think you're articulating them very well. You're, you're, you're calling on colleagues to not sit on the fence, to not fear change. I think those two quite simple suggestions could move us forward. You know, there, there's nothing to fear from change. We're all working towards progress, you know, not not new forms of injustice. We're, look, we're working towards more, more justice, greater justice. And I really like your call to, to do the emotional work that's required in order to deal with the fear of change. Perhaps we could just move now to thinking about, you know, there's been a, a discourse of transformation for quite some time in our universities, but in the, in the recent past, in the last year or six months, we've seen increasingly a call to think about the decolonization of the university rather than its transformation. And I wonder if you have any comments on this shift in vocabulary and what it implies and why it's important. Yeah. Maybe you can tell us about the Facebook page before you, you carry on. Just listeners might be interested to know. Well, it is, it is a strange thing. Um, I, I was doing some work for University of South Africa um, and reading quite a number of newspaper articles, reading papers. And I thought, I know there are lots of people who would be interested in seeing some of this and just who don't have the time to go about finding the material. And I, I also thought to myself that if this keeps going, I could get vice chancellors who are, some of them are Luddites who just don't go into social media at all and, and you know, get them to become more in touch with what young people are saying. Um, and, and social media is the platform. So there, there were two aims. I was working for University of South Africa. I was doing some work for them, and that's the Vice Chancellors Association. And then I also thought that this would be a networking, you know, a sharing opportunity and a networking opportunity. And you know, with with the the decolonization movement having sprung up and and the kinds of debates that were happening, I think people had a much better sense, you know, through that shorter period of of the kinds of things that 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 you know at least students in South Africa were asking for, and and the issue of the curriculum was probably an an issue that has been the hardest thing to change in, in post-apartheid South Africa. Um, in spite of, uh, you know, a large number of attempts at the national level through the National Research Foundation, through the Council on Higher Education, through, you know, requiring different submissions from universities on curriculum transformation at the Department of Higher Education and Training, it's just been the hardest thing to get get moving in terms of a, a, a new agenda that really embraced principles of, of equity and non-racialism and which really dealt historically with where we were positioned in Africa and what it is that our experiences, how our experiences in the past shaped who we are and what we value in terms of knowledge and knowledge production. There are almost 4,200 members of the page when I last checked. Yes, it grows and grows. And I, you know, there have been people have raised, you know, where does the page go to from here? 
And I think that's an important question. Um, I've had my own personal challenges. Um, I have a, a daughter who has had health issues and so I've taken off from full-time employment to, to take care of her. So I have also had the time to really manage the page in, in the way I want to. So I'd like to share the responsibility, but I, I would also like us to, to think through, you know, a direction for, for the page. I think as a public forum for discussion and sharing ideas, it can only add value to any yes. any kind of process of policy making or decision making. That's right. That's right. And how we got there, how we got here and, you know, addressing where we see ourselves going. You know, that's me speaking. It's not it's not a textbook speaking or it's not something that I've, I've, I'm writing on at the moment, but it's, it's where my gut is as a human being about my children's future, about the environment, because I think these are all interrelated. It's, it's the intersections of all of these issues, which is which are important. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense is that, you know, we've always thought about transformation in quite a particularly South African some might even say slightly parochial way. But if we try to link that to the broader project of decolonization, like you say, we can start to think across boundaries, start to think more globally, more holistically about how the challenges we have in our specific context are mirrored or linked to other challenges that are happening in other contexts. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Absolutely. Okay, I think we're coming to the end of our, our, our time together. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up or talk about that we haven't had a chance to cover yet? Well, you know, what I've found over the past few days has been the way in which social media is used to mobilize again. And how interesting it's been because it's 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 kind of pushed the boundaries and 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 that's exciting to me, you know. It's exciting to see a human agency mm. pushing boundaries in the way we do, using technology, news, using new forms of organization to democratize spaces that have not been democratized, you know, mm. and seeing the value of it. So that, that has been exciting. Mm. That's a nice optimistic note to end on. <laughs> A big thank you to Nazima for sharing the many insights that she has gained by working on transformation from an institutional perspective. It's a really complex topic and one that might mean many different things to different people. Perhaps we can all agree that participating in the transformation project is one route to achieving a more just and equitable society. To close our show today, let's hear from a student on what transformation means to them. My name is Sibulele Mkurwa and I've got a Bachelor of Commerce degree from the University of the Witwatersrand. It's a degree now that I completed in 2014, but which only got conferred upon me at a graduation ceremony in March of 2016. Because I had owed fees to the tune of 60,000, I couldn't graduate with my classmates and I couldn't even get the results. But I think more importantly is not really the story but really, how do we move forward? It, it, it dawned on me that there's a lot which needs to be done. But issues like this really don't need a paradigm shift in ideology or in the movement of government. 
they just need a couple of changes in university statutes here and there and a willingness from the university, a willingness from government and a certain direction from student leaders to push this kind of agenda in the right direction. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAWU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asawu.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balumi Lembenyane. Thanks to Nazima Mohammed, Nathan and Sibulele for their time, as well as David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.